All right, let's go ahead and get into our text this morning. We're going to be looking at Revelation chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 6. And this is kind of an unfortunate, uh, I shouldn't say unfortunate, but it's, um, it's a letter that is not easy. Uh, I mean, all these letters that Jesus has been writing to the churches of Asia Minor in, in modern-day Turkey, right there on the western side of Turkey, all of these seven churches existed physically in the first century A.D., and uh, these churches all had issues, had, they had problems, they had things that they were doing well, and they also had things that they weren't doing so well. Let's read this passage together. It's fairly short. Uh, Revelation chapter 3, there's seven churches. We're looking at the fifth of those churches to, this morning. And it's the church of Sardis. And let's just go ahead and read it. Verse 1, it says, Jesus speaking here, and you'll notice that in your Bible, if you've got a red-letter Bible, these words are on red because these are words that Jesus spoke. He dictated this letter to John to give to these churches. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. And again, as he has ended the other letters, so he does here. He says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And remember, as we read this, these letters were going to be written and delivered individually to these specific churches, and also they were meant for all the other churches to read too, because as we, as we read and have read these seven letters to the seven churches, every one of them can apply to someone in any church at any given time. And that's why we read all of them, and this is why Jesus ends each letter with the uh, command, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And, and every letter is end, it ends that same way. And so this is the way the Lord chooses to speak to his people. Let's look at Sardis just for a few moments here. Uh, Sardis is the capital city of Lydia. If you were looking at a, a map of, of Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey, you were to divide it in half with a vertical line uh, the western side would be called Lydia. And so the capital city of Lydia was this city called Sardis. And you can see on, uh, on a map, Thyatira, this, the, the church that we were talking about last week, Sardis is about 30 miles southeast of Thyatira. It is today the, the village of Sart. And it's a, believe it or not, this is a place where silver and gold coins were first minted 
in the city of Sardis, and it was located on a trade route, which most of these cities that we're talking about had a considerable trade going in and out of them because they were, they were big cities, and this was no different. And this city was especially wealthy when it was in its heyday, uh, long before the church that Jesus is referring to right now in its history. It was very, very prosperous. It was on a trade route. Evidently, five different uh, roads had led in and around the city of Sardis. And it was a very uh, luxuriant, very prosperous city. They sold jewelry and dyes. They dyed clothing and cloth and textiles. And it was also, as the other cities that we looked at and the churches, it was also in a city that was uh, a center of pagan worship. And this particular city of Sardis was a temple of Artemis. Artemis, the temple there, was erected sometime in the 4th century B.C., so it had been there long before the church began there. But it had a rich and glorious past, but now at the time of the writing of Jesus Christ to these churches, this city was in moral decay and it was rapidly going downhill, which is always the case when a country, when a city, when a people has turned their back on God, that is always the result. There is always decay. There is always problems. And because we need to be looking up, you know, even in our own country, you know, the things that we see that are in decline, the, the decline of the family, the, the decline of society, uh, the decline of morality, all of these things have ramifications. They have consequences. And we're seeing those things right now. And so as we read this letter, and as we have read it, and as we'll look at it further, it's important for us as America to look at this letter, and certainly the church in America, because not everybody in the church in America fits this description, but there are some. And there are some churches that are completely, completely dead. There's The Spirit of God is no longer there. It's, it's more of a monument to bygone years and bygone pastors and, and, and bygone movements. And we can never get to that place. And God help us when the church becomes a, a monument of something that happened in the past. The church is living, and we need to be living in the expectancy right now of what God wants to do in and through us. He wants us to rise up. He wants to awaken us. So I would encourage you to take that challenge today. And again, you might not fit the bill of this church that we're looking at this morning. You may say, well, I'm not a dead Christian. My faith is not dead. I'm not, uh, I don't need to be awoken. Well, praise the Lord. I hope that is true for all of us, honestly. And, and so let's take that challenge uh, such as it is. So let's get into it. Let's look at verse 1. It says, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, Now remember, when he says the angel of the church in Sardis, he's speaking to the pastor of that specific church, in Asia Minor. Jesus is speaking to that man at this time in history, and he's writing, and he says, to the angel, to the messenger, to the pastor of the church in Sardis, write these things, says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. That you are dead. You know, when we look at this name, you know, there's a phrase that we often use, what's in a name? And Sardis has a name. And the actual word Sardis can mean red ones. And that could mean, that could have a bearing on the type of stone that was harvested in that area that was sold and, 
and it was called a, sardi, uh, a sarda stone or a sardine stone, which is red in color. And so the city may have gotten its name based upon that. There are other reasons for uh, the possible name, but we won't go into that because it's not really important too much for our purposes this morning. But notice what Jesus says in the next phrase. These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. You recall in the very first chapter of Revelation that Jesus described himself or was described as, uh, let me just read it to you in, in Revelation 1 verse 4. It says, John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from seven spirits who are before his throne. And even in the next verse it says, and from Jesus Christ. So here in these verses 4 and 5 we really see the Trinity. God the Father who is the one who is and who was and who is to come. That's speaking of God the Father from the seven spirits. It's uh, symbolic of the Holy Spirit. And then certainly in the next verse, verse 5, it speaks of Jesus Christ. There we have the Trinity very clearly. But when he says the seven spirits, this really speaks to the completeness and the perfection of the Holy Spirit's office and His power. And remember, there is only one Holy Spirit. It's not like there's seven spirits, but it really speaks of His sevenfold character of completeness and perfection. Just like there is only one God, but in the song that we sang this morning, the hymn, God in Three Persons, Blessed Trinity, just like there is only one God, but there are three persons, right? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They are all one. They are equal, equally God, but they are, it's one God. It's not three. And so it's interesting that Jesus refers to himself as the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Because this church needed to understand that Jesus was looking in upon this church, as he has the right to do in any church, to peer inside and to see what's going on, to see the temperature of the church, to see what they're doing well, to see what they're not doing well. And you, we all know that the Spirit of God is omniscient. It's a fancy word, but it just means all-knowing. God knows everything, and by His Spirit, He sees and knows all things. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 9, Paul, in writing to the Corinthians, he said this, and he quotes from Isaiah. He says, "...Eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love Him." But God has revealed them to us through His Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. And so the Spirit of God is omniscient. He knows all things. And these seven spirits are spoken of as at least three different things here in the book of Revelation. We see that the seven spirits is something that Jesus himself, he possesses. We see that in uh, chapter 3, verse 1 that we just read. Notice, these, these things says he who has the seven spirits of God, and it speaks of ownership. Jesus Christ has the ability, he, he has, uh, in a sense, uh, it is directed by him. The spirit of God is directed by him. We see also in chapter 4, verse 5, that the, the spirit, these seven spirits are seven lamps of fire burning before the throne. And as we, as we see these kinds of, uh, this kind of imagery in the Bible, we have to understand that John is describing for us uh, a scene that we've never seen before. 
And but we will see if you're a Christian, you will see these things that were that are being described for us. But in Revelation chapter four, verse five, what does it say? And it says, And from the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. So we know that these seven spirits of God are also seven lamps of fire. And it speaks of purity, doesn't it? When we think of fire, fire purifies. And so we also see in Revelation chapter 5, verse 6, that it's also... These seven spirits of God also are seven eyes of the Lamb of God, who is Jesus Christ. And we read that in Revelation 5, verse 6. And it says, And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures. And again, this is a scene that John is describing for us of the throne room of God. And I would encourage you to read chapter 4 and chapter 5 and let your heart be taken away with this imagery. Because, folks, that is where we're going to be standing one day at the throne room of God, and we're going to see the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the Lamb as it had been slain before the foundation of the world. We're going to see Him there at the throne. But in Revelation 5 or 6, it says, And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a Lamb as though it had been slain, notice, having seven horns and seven eyes, Seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent forth into all the earth. And so, the seven spirits of God really just speaks, again, of the sevenfold character, the nature of the Holy Spirit of God. So we go on here, and he also says the seven stars. It says, he who has the seven spirits of God, and the seven stars. And we saw in Revelation again. It's good as you read the Bible to let the Bible define to you what these things mean. The Bible is really not a complicated book at all. As long as you read the whole thing and as you study it, you realize that it's not really that complicated. Uh, In fact, uh, as we're seeing here, we're we're seeing the, the book of Revelation define these things for us. We don't have to uh, come up with some kind of ethereal, you know, mysterious thing. It, it's all right here. The, the, there are some things in here, as we're going to get into, that are going to be mysterious to us because John is describing characters and incidences that we've never seen before, that he's never seen before, and he's trying in, in a language to describe these things. So there's enough mystery here, no doubt, but it's not beyond our understanding. And And certainly here, when he speaks of the seven stars... These are the equivalent to these angels or these messengers or these pastors of the seven churches. Again, remember in Revelation 1 verse 20, it gives us the answer here of who these seven stars are. Let me read it to you. The mystery of the seven stars, Jesus says, which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, and here he defines them. The seven stars are the angels or the pastors of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. Pretty simple, right? The stars are about the pastors of those churches. The lampstands are the churches themselves. And notice also that these stars are something that Jesus possesses and holds on to as well. We saw that in Revelation chapter 1, verse 16. It says that he, Jesus, had in his right hand seven stars. And in Revelation 2, verse 1, in his letter to the church at Ephesus, what does he say? His, his very first introduction to this church is, the, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand. And the right hand always speaks of 
power and authority. It speaks of, when it's speaking of the hand, the right hand of God, it's speaking of salvation. It's speaking of refuge and protection. So these seven stars are the pastors who are held by their creator. And I don't know about you, but that's a really comforting thing to me because it's encouraging to know that Jesus has us in addition to these pastors that he has in his hands. He also holds us. Turn with me to John's Gospel, chapter 10. We're going to look at verse 22. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Let's look at John chapter 10, beginning in verse 22. It says, Now it was the feast of dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter, and Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. And then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, in other words, if you are God in the flesh, if you are the Messiah, equal to God, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you. And you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear, they bear witness of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. As I said to you, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And here's the verse I really wanted to get to, but I wanted to give the context. He says, and I give them, my sheep, Jesus says, my sheep, Jesus says, I give them eternal life and notice, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Do you get that? So Jesus here has these pastors in his right hand, and there is such a wonderful there's such wonderful assurance really in that. And in fact, we, we teach the doctrine of uh, eternal security. It's, it's a doctrine that is in the Bible and it's eternal security. And this is one of those verses that really substantiate that claim because God, uh, salvation is a gift of God and God knows what He's doing, right? It's, salvation is a gift of God and He doesn't give something and then take it back. God, when He gives, it is something, it is forever. He doesn't make mistakes. We make mistakes all the time, but God knows and He is the one who gives salvation. So once you're saved, you are always saved. You may go through difficulty, but you are a child of God, and God will work in your life. And you know, if you think of it, if the Lord Jesus Christ has paid the price for our salvation by His death on the cross, and He places His Holy Spirit in you, which He says He does, which is the down payment of your salvation, is there anyone who is able to reverse this? Is there anyone able to take that gift out of God's hand, out of your hand? The answer is no. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, it says, Paul says to the Ephesians, In Him you trusted, in Jesus, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, notice you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee or the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. Until He comes for us physically in the rapture, He places a down payment, in a sense, within us, and that is the Spirit of God. And most of us have a problem with eternal security, or some do anyway, but the problem we have with eternal security is our faith in God's Word and His promise versus our emotions and even our own performance uh, in our Christian walk. And, and that's where the rub lies, is because we don't always 
uh, believe that God saved me and how can I do these horrible things or how can I do this and still be a child of God? Well, God is still working, isn't he? And that's what the process of sanctification is all about. That's what it's all about. But God doesn't save you. He doesn't place His Spirit within you and then abandon you because you've done something in your life. We need to repent of those things, certainly, but, but that does not mean that we are not a child of God. And if you continue in rebelliousness and you continue in habitual sin, you know, you're going to be miserable. You're going to be a miserable Christian. And there's nothing worse than a miserable Christian who once was set free but is continuing to go back and do things that they know are wrong. And, and that's not God's fault. And God will work in a life, and God still may have a hold, you know, has saved this person, but this person is still wrestling and not yet continuing to give up some issue of sin. And it's a miserable thing to, to see. And, and, and some of us have gone through things like that. And, you know, as soon as you surrender, there is a great freedom. There's a great peace when you uh, surrender those things to the Lord. It doesn't mean you're perfect, but you understand what I'm saying. So it's important to do that. But eternal security is what the Bible teaches. And Jesus holds these, these men, these pastors of these churches in his hand as he holds you and I. Notice at the end of that verse, oh, he says something else. He says, I know your works, I know your toil, I know your, the things that you have done, and you, that you have a name that you are alive and are dead. You have a reputation that you are alive, but you are dead. You know, this city, as I was say, stating before, had a glorious beginning, but the church and the people in it were clinging to old victories and old things of the past. And they were looking, always looking back on the great things back then, and they were failing to live in the here and now and going forward in victory. And that's always a bad thing to do. It's a bad thing to uh, always be looking at what happened in the past. God wants to do a great work in you today, and He wants to do great works in you going forward. So don't be looking at past victories and past glories, in a sense. Look forward to what He's doing with you now and what He's going to do in the future. Don't ever look back. Just keep going. And, and so many churches, have, have they do that. They look back on some great pastor who, you know, um, uh, who started a church somewhere and his face is up on the plaque and everyone's looking at him but nothing's going on in the church anymore because they're still worshiping what happened back then instead of worshiping Jesus Christ keeping their eyes focused on him God will share his glory with no one with no pastor no matter how gifted no matter how good-looking he is no matter how well-spoken he is no matter how wealthy he is there is no one in comparison with Jesus and we need to keep our eyes focused on Him and not on a man or on men. And so there is this possibility. You know, Jesus said you have this reputation that you are alive, but you're dead. Remember in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus really upbraided the religious leaders in Jerusalem, the Pharisees. And what did He say to them? In Matthew 23, verse 27, He says, Woe to you! And I would encourage you to read the whole chapter 23 of Matthew um, but he's really letting these religious leaders have it. He's not being easy on them at all. He is really, really pounding them pretty hard. And they deserved it because they were claiming to be right with God, going through all the motions. Everything on the outside was looking really good. But notice what Jesus said, Matthew 23, verse 27. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! 
For you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead man's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And see, that is what happens to a church that has lost its first love. That's a church that is more concerned about the outward appearance rather than what's going on inside. Jesus, you know, um, he's not concerned about the outward appearance. We spend so much time and so much money fixing this outward tent so we display ourselves to everyone else the way we want them to see us, and yet God can see through all of that. Aren't you glad that everybody can't see right through uh, all, all of these things that we do. And there's nothing wrong with dressing modestly and, 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 and dressing respectfully. There's nothing wrong with that. But if, if that's all there is, if that's just a manifestation of something I want everybody to see, but there's no beauty inside, what's the, what's the worth? And our culture is filled with that. But notice, you have a name that you're alive but are dead. And you think of a, a dead church. This almost seems like a paradox. The church is something that is alive. There should never be any equating it with anything relating to death at all. Because the church was birthed, if you recall, on the de- after the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Just as Eve in the garden came forth from Adam's side, so too the church came forth from the wounds that were uh, inflicted upon him on the cross as he was uh, as a spear pierced his side and water and blood came out, it was after that that the church was birthed. And we were birthed just like Eve was through Adam, through the side of Jesus Christ. And so we, therefore, are to be the church of the living and not of the dead. They had a reputation that they were alive, but they were dead as doornails. They were dead. We are to be dead to sin, but alive to God. Turn with me to Romans chapter 6, verse 5. We're going to read this quickly. This is a great chapter, a great passage. And it really speaks of baptism and what baptism really means. But notice what he says. For if we, verse 5, have been united together in the likeness of his death, speaking of the church to Christ, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, verse 6, that our old man, this old nature, it was crucified with him on the cross, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Have you ever noticed that uh, uh, somebody in the grave, they don't struggle with sin at all anymore. There's no struggle with sin anymore. So he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe also that we shall live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, he dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once and for all. For the life that he lives, he lives to God. And here's our verse in verse 11. Likewise, you also... Reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ our Lord. And so there it is. We are not to be dead. There should be nothing, no connotation concerning the church as far as deadness. It should be alive. Certainly dead to sin, but alive to God. And we have this ability, and this is scary, we have this free will. We have the ability, like the church of Sardis, to forsake the fountain of living waters, who is God himself his power, and his enablement. Free will is one of the most wonderful and also the most dangerous thing that we human beings possess. 
in Jeremiah chapter 2, God speaking to, to Jerusalem before uh, the Babylonians were literally coming on their doorstep. And Jeremiah wrote this to, the, 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 um, God spoke this uh, to Jeremiah to give to the people of, of Judah and Jerusalem. And what did he say? In verse 11, he says, Has a nation changed its gods, which are not gods? Because God was going to upbraid them for their idolatry. And in fact, it's for that very reason that they were going to be taken into captivity. He says, Has a nation changed its gods, which are not gods? But my people have changed their glory. For what does, for what does not profit? And then he, God says, Be astonished, O heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Be very desolate, says the Lord. Here it is, verse 13. For my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they've hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And a cistern was exactly that, a, a vessel, a large container where rainwater could come in, and it was uh, there for, uh, for a purpose, for, for, for life. But they were searching out things that had a broken cistern that really weren't offering them life at all, but rather death. And they had forsaken the Lord, and now they were going to be to go through the consequences of that. Because whenever we turn our back on the Lord, any church, any individual, there is only uh, bad consequences. There is only consequences, and they're horrible. In Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 13, he says this again, O Lord, the hope of Israel... All who forsake you shall be ashamed, and those who depart from me, the Lord says, shall be written in the earth because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. And see, that's what happened to this church. They had forsaken the Lord. They had uh, let go. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, we're going to end this section on this. Deuteronomy chapter 30, beginning in verse 15, let me read it to you. You know, feel free to write these down, but for time's sake, I'm just going to read it to you. It'll be in the uh, notes as well. The Lord speaking to the children of Israel through Moses, and, and this is really pertinent to us, pertinent to us today. Verse 15, he says, See, I have set before you, and this is right before the children of Israel were going to cross over the Jordan River into the promised land after they had come out of Egypt. God says to them, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. And that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in His ways, to keep His commandments, His statutes, and His judgments, that you may live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go to possess. Does that sound like a loving God or not? I mean, that, t- that sounds to me like a loving Father who cares for His people tremendously. And this is what a father does. No father looks at his children and, and wishes evil upon them. He tells them the truth. He guides and directs them. And when they go astray, he has to discipline them. God did the same thing with them, and he does the same thing with us. He chastens those whom he loves. And I've been chastened of the Lord, and I know that I'm his because of that. If he didn't chasten me, then I wouldn't have a real father. But notice what he says. I announce to you today, but if your heart turns away so that you do not hear and are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I announce to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land which, I, which you cross over the Jordan to go in and possess. And here it is in verse 19. I call heaven and earth as witness today against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live. That's God's commandment to us. Choose life. Choose life. 
and, and you know, choose life in every aspect of your life. Choose life. You know, what have you chosen thus far? What have you chosen? What choices have you made? Were they uh, decisions based upon your, your knowledge of Christ and in your relationship with Christ? Have they been choices that have been more aligned with death rather than life? We need to focus on the things that are good going forward and choose life. Choose life. Recently, we were in a, in a park at Shadow Pines Park just, I don't know, about a week or two ago, a week and a half ago. And I'll never forget, there was a young man there who was playing with it. We, we were down, coming down, going down a hill and coming up a hill, and we saw a young teenage boy on his bike, and he was playing with a, a, a gardener snake. And it was a beautiful day. And he was just out doing his thing, you know, just out exploring, which young guys do. But he was there playing with the snake. And so we came upon him, and I said, hey, wow, look at that. You know, what kind of snake is that? And, he, and I looked, and I could see that it was a gardener's snake. And then right across the path, there was a den of snakes. And we looked over there, and sure enough, there they are in the sun. The sun was beating right out. They're out there sunning themselves. They look like tourists out on the Florida beach. So there they are, and uh, they're out there sunning themselves, and I, and I see a bunch of big rocks near there. And so I looked at the young boy, knowing that when I was a young boy, the things that I thought. I remember I, I looked back and with a smile on my face, and I said, choose life. <laughs> choose life. Because I was hoping that he wasn't going to smash those, those, uh, those snakes. They weren't harming anyone. You know, but it just reminded me of, of everything in life. You know, life is sacred, and we don't have the right to snuff out a life unless our lives are in danger and we're being attacked, of course. But, you know, when possible, choose life. Choose life. It is a good thing. Choose life. When I set out as a Christian, I had my own plans of the things that I wanted to do. And, and I'm so glad that the Lord intervened in my life, and He took me on the path that I was on. He took me on the path that I was on, and He put me on a different path. And I'm so glad that He did because I'm more blessed, happy, fulfilled, whatever you want to call it. I would have never have designed what I'm doing now for my life. It would have been the farthest thing from my thoughts, honestly. But God, He causes us first to will and then to do of His good pleasure. And you know what? I'm blessed. I'm very, I, I truly am. But, you know, we need to walk in the old paths. You know, the Bible speaks of... Uh, of the paths that we take, but we should walk in the old paths. There's a phrase that says, if it is new, it is not true. And if it is true, it is not new. (laughs) Again, if it is new, it is not true. And if it is true, it is not new. And there are so many things today, people purporting, oh, I got a new revelation of God. No, you didn't. Uh, there's nothing new that God has, want, needs to add to His Scripture. Certainly our experiences can be unique, but there's not going to be any other doctrine or any other uh, bodies of uh, material that we can look at and, and, um, and say that you know, this is brand new. We just found this in a cave somewhere. God made sure that what we have in our hands right now has been verified, it's been scrutinized, it's been looked at under the fine-tooth comb in every possible way. And some of the most vehement uh, opponents of the Bible have come to salvation as a result of their own investigation into the truths and the veracity of the Scripture. And so, but we are to be, to stay on those old paths. In fact, in Jeremiah... 
chapter 6, beginning in verse 16, the Lord is speaking to Judah and Benjamin, the, the southern two tribes, right before the Babylonian captivity in 606 B.C. It says, Thus says the Lord, Stand in the ways and see and ask for the old paths. For the old pass, where the good way is, and walk in it. This church in Sardis was not on that narrow path. They weren't on the path at all. They were dying on the vine. And instead of uh, being on that old path, you know, a lot of people say, well, it's old, therefore it needs to be replaced with something new. You know, sometimes the old things, there's no need to improve upon them. And especially when it comes to the Lord and His ways, His truth abides forever. His truth stands forever. The world and everything in it will pass away. But what did Jesus say? My word will never pass away. And that His word is truth. In Jeremiah chapter 18, verse 15, he said this, Because my people have forgotten me, and he's speaking of the Jews, of, the, of Judah and Jerusalem specifically, they have burned incense to worthless idols, and they have caused themselves to stumble in their ways from the ancient paths, to walk in pathways and not on a highway. And so we see that happen. We see it, we saw that happening to them, and that's why they went into captivity. The psalmist David said in Psalm 16, You will show me the path of life. The path of life is a wonderful path. And, and, and very few there be that find themselves on that path because wide is the gate and wide is the road that leads to destruction, but narrow is the gate. Narrow is the road to le that's leading to life. And few there are that find themselves on that because they choose other things. They, 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 they totally abandon the Word of God. They abandon Jesus Christ. And there's, there's, there's really no other salvation outside of Him. So where are you going to go? Where are you going to go? What are you going to do? So many people looking for things. They're trying to find themselves. You know, you don't need to go out and find yourself. You need to find Jesus Christ. He knows where you're at, but you have no clue of who He is. Find Christ. He is the way. The song that we sang this morning, Teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. That's Psalm 86. Unite my heart to fear your name, God, and I will praise you, O Lord my God, with all my heart, and I will glorify your name forever. I will glorify your name forever. And this church of Sardis was not spiritually lost, but their spiritual vitality was on life support. They were breathing their last breaths and, and many of them were just plain dead. And there are churches, like I said before, monuments and, uh, of movements long ago, pictures, marble busts, statues, stained glass, no excitement, the worship is dead, the teaching is dead, there's no belief even in the pastor preaching that this is the Word of God. Because if, if you don't believe that this is the Word of God, then I would encourage any pastor, anybody who doesn't, who's standing in the pulpit that doesn't believe in God and believe that this is the truth and that Jesus is the truth, please do everyone a favor and go work somewhere else because you don't belong there. You don't belong there. And even Calvary Chapel as a movement, it started, what, 50 years ago and in the, in the hippie movement in the, in the 70s. That's where it started. And if, you know, we've been 50 years into this already, and we cannot look upon Chuck Smith. We can't look back on those past victories and things that happened in the past. I would, I would encourage you to pray that God would do something new and fresh today, not, uh, and not be looking back on what the, how great Calvary Chapel was in the past. I want to see God do something with us today and going forward and not to be looking back. And see, that's where we need to be, folks. And I would challenge you to pray. That's why prayer is so important. 
Revival needs to begin with me. It needs to begin with you. And I pray and pray for me too that God would set me on fire. Not, not in some kind of false bravado. You know, because Jesus, there was no one more spiritual on the planet than Jesus. And yet he was the most approachable. He was the most caring. He was the most loving. He didn't stand out on the corner with placards saying, all of you are going to hell. He was difficult and, and hard on the religious leaders. But to the average person, he was the most loving and caring, and we need to be the same way. But if we don't ask God to do it now, we too, the Calvary Chapel movement will die on the vine, and it will shrivel up and die. And we will be like many churches downtown where you walk in and there's nothing going on. Everything is dead. There's just statues. There's just a man opening a book and reading it, and he might not even be sober, and he's reading the, the liturgy. You know, and these things happen in real life. I've seen it myself. And this is not the way the church is to be. We must resist the spirit of our culture and ask God to revive us again. Will you be with me? Will you stand with me and ask God to do that in your own heart? And pray for me too. I want that more than anything because if we don't ask God to do this now in our life, what about our generation? What about our kids and our grandkids? What about this this area surrounding the church, we need to minister to them and get out. That's why we last summer we went out into the community around us, and that's why hopefully we can do it again. And so I'd encourage you to pray, folks. Let's pray for revival in the church. Pray for revival within your own heart. Uh, there was a, a man by the name of William Barclay. He observed that a church is in danger of death when it begins to worship its own past, when it is more concerned with forms than with life when it loves systems more than it loves Jesus Christ, when it has more concern with material than spiritual things. And that is true. That's one thing we have to be very careful of. And so as we look at verses 2 and 3 here, uh, we're going to see five keys to revival, and we're going to see them. The first one is be watchful. In other words, be awake. The second one is to strengthen the things that remain. The third thing is to remember. The, third, or the fourth thing is to hold fast or to watch or guard. And then finally, the fifth, to repent. Let's look at verse 2. He says, Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. It, it just literally means to be awake. In other words, wake up. We, Calvary Chapel of Rochester, we need to wake up. I need to wake up. And I would encourage you, if you are in that place where you're just feeling kind of dead spiritually, wake up. Wake up. You know, this 9-11 that uh, happened in our country, that was a wake-up call. And now this coronavirus is a wake-up call. How much more will God have to do to wake the church again? Jesus said to this church, be watchful. And no doubt he was God who knows all things, knowing the history of everything. This church wasn't watchful. There was a time in 549 B.C. that the Persian king Cyrus scaled the cliffs under the cover of darkness and, and, and took over the city. Sardis lies about 1,500 feet on a plateau, and it has very uh, slim sides there. And he found a way to climb up, uh, him and his uh, troops. And it was destroyed because they weren't paying attention. They weren't watching. And the same thing happened in 214 B.C. with Antiochus the Great, who was one of Alexander the Great's generals. He did the same thing by conquering the city just a couple hundred years after that. And this is something that we, too, as Christians, we need to wake up. We need to wake up. 
We need to open our word, open the Bible again, and start being obedient to it. We need to read it. And notice he says, strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. In other words, there are things that are there, but they're on life support. And many people are not studying the Bible. So what are the things that they need to do, that, that, the things that we need to do to strengthen that which remains? We need to get back into the Word of God and study the Bible. We need to understand what it says. How are you going to be able to know how to frame everything if we don't know what it says? We need to be back in prayer. We need to be people of prayer. So many people have given up on prayer. It's one of our least attended meetings in all of the church is our prayer meeting. And it shows where we really are at spiritually. It shows that we are declining. And folks, we need to be people of prayer. And we need to be back in fellowship. And, and certainly we can't be in fellowship physically right now. But we can call each other on the phone right now. There's a lot we can do. We can socially distance at parks, you know. We can do these things. But get back into fellowship. Get back into the personal evangelization. Do you evangelize personally when you're out and about? Do you talk to people? Do you hand them a Bible? Do you have a couple Bibles in your car? You know, and you see somebody. Be open to what the Spirit of God might want to do. And be obedient to God's Word. Be obedient to God's Word. These are things that we need to strengthen or else because they are ready to die. And that's what he spoke to the church at, uh, at Sardis. And uh, in many churches, there are people in those churches that are in the similar state. I'm not saying that our fellowship is anywhere near that, but there are um, people in every, different, every one of these states, in every church, you'll find some are doing really well, some aren't doing well, some are struggling, some aren't being obedient, some are living in outright sin, they're sleeping with their, with their girlfriend, they're living with, their, you know, with somebody else, and they're ripping their, their boss off, and others are, are just watching things that they shouldn't watch. Disobedience and spiritual dryness, one author said, are twin sisters. Wherever you find one, you will find the other. Selective obedience is no obedience at all. It is merely convenience. Get back to obeying God's Word, and that's what we need to do. And going on to verse 3, Jesus said to this church, Remember, remember, therefore, what you have received. The, King, the New King James says how you have received but some other texts say what you have received, and that actually makes more sense. Remember what you have received and what you've heard. Remember when you gave your heart to Christ and the joy that you had and, and just being free from the, the guilt and the burden of sin, knowing that you've been forgiven. Do you remember that joy? Do you remember that? It was like, like a honeymoon experience. I remember it myself, and I don't ever want that to end. I always want to live with that honeymoon experience with the Lord because I, don't never, I never want that flame to die out in my heart. And I allow it to die out when I, I'm, I'm more fixed on the things of the, of the world. And the things in the world aren't necessarily evil, but it's, it's, it's what I do with them. You know, is that where my heart is in the, in the patterns and the things and the, in the systems of the world? Or is my heart really close to Christ? And do I really want to love Him and to honor Him and to love people? and to encourage them. These are things we need to consider. Remember how you have received and, uh, and what you've received. What did, what did we receive? We received the gospel. We received the gospel. This church, certainly at Sardis, was evidently not allowing the Spirit of God to have His way in them. And did you know that we have the ability, the scary ability, to quench, to grieve, and resist the Spirit of God. And that's what happens in a dead church. A dead church doesn't just get dead automatically. It's a process. It's a process. And in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 19, it says, Do not quench the Spirit 
of God. And, and literally what that means is to extinguish it, to throw water on the fire. And we throw water on the fire by watching movies and, and junk on television that aren't really edifying, things that are actually warring against us rather than building us up and encouraging us. And, and, and in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, what does it say? Paul said to the Ephesians, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. We can grieve the Spirit of God. He's not some impersonal force out there in the universe. No, He's a person. We sang it this morning. God in three persons, blessed Trinity. We do not want to grieve the Spirit of God. And yet this church in Sardis, they not only quenched Him, they grieved Him, but now they also resisted Him. In Acts chapter 7, remember when Stephen stood before, his, before the religious leaders, right before he was stoned, he really got on their case. And he says, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so did you. And what was the result of that? They killed Him. They stoned him to death outside the city because they were so angry with him because he told them the truth. And the truth hurts sometimes, doesn't it? But we need to hear the truth. And again, in verse 3, what does he say again? One of the other keys to revival is holding fast. Holding fast. And that, that what that means is to literally watch or guard. And then finally, to repent. To repent, And that really just means to turn around. It's a word that nobody likes today. I mean, you mention the word repent out in public and, and they know exactly who you are. Oh, you're one of those Bible-thumping, you know, conservative Christians. And, you know, we got to do everything that we do in love, right? I mean, who's going to respond to somebody who's, who seems angry? You know, we don't need to be angry. We got great news to share. Yes, there's a bite to it because we have to if we need a savior, that means that we're that we're that we need to be saved. And what do we need to be saved from? Well, all the sin. Our our whole life is filled with sin. We need to be saved. Right? And so but we can do that with joy and with decency and with respect to other people. We don't need to be nasty with them. I mean, who's gonna want to receive from you if you're uh, being really nasty to them. Jesus was never nasty to the average person who didn't know him. He was hard on the religious leaders, but the average person he was not. So he says, hold fast, watch or guard, and then repent, to turn around, to think differently, to have a change of heart. That's really what repentance is. I'm going in one direction, and I see the fruit of it, and I make a about face, and I turn the opposite direction, and I go the opposite direction. There is a problem you know, when we love our sin and we will do anything to protect it and to keep it, we have to turn from that thing. He says, therefore, verse 3, if you will not watch, notice, if you will not watch, therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief and you will not know that when, uh, what hour I will come unto you. This language sounds very similar to other areas, <clears throat> excuse me, in the scripture where Jesus is speaking concerning the second coming, but this is not what this is referring to at all. Uh, it's really speaking of uh, God removing His influence and His sweet fragrance, really, in their fellowship, removing their influence of this church. You remember in Revelation chapter 2, verse 5, when Jesus is speaking to the Ephesians, what He said to them, He said, Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. And and really, that's just, when he removes the lampstand, that remo he, he removes the light. 
if we continue in rebellion, uh, God will just remove the light. Your influence on the, your culture, on your family, on, in your own life, your influence. You may be saved, but there's going to be no influence at all. And there's so many people like that, so many Christians like that. They, they, they have salvation, you know, but, but they, 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 they just kind of like have done nothing. And, and, and they have no, there's no zeal, there's no, there's no reading, there's no studying the Word of God, there's no prayer, there's nothing. They're just kind of living their lives now, and there's no witness. And, and what, how does that really help the individual? When a person who lives like that, again, a person who lives like that is a miserable Christian because they're failing to see the joy and the, and the hope and, and the wonderful grace and all of that. And, and it does, it has such a wonderful effect on the person, and that's contagious. That, that really is. People look at you uh, when you're going through the most difficult of things and they say, how can you smile? How can you just let this thing roll off? You know, people who had that happen to them are taking drugs and finding their problem and trying to drown their sorrows in the bottle of Jim Beam. Why aren't you that way? And you can say, well, you know what? I know the Lord knows what He's doing and He's allowing this for a reason and I'm just going to submit my heart to Him. He knows what He... And people are like, what? <laughs> That's a person who's walking with God. And they're like, I don't know what that person has, but I want that. And it is attractive. A real spirit-filled Christian, their life is attractive. Why? Because they're attractive? No, because the Spirit of God in them is attractive. There's nothing about me, as you can see, that's of any beauty. But when God is working through me, it can be the most beautiful thing to others around me. And see, that's the way I want to live. Is that the way you want to live? I I would assume that, that the answer is yes, that you want that as well. And so... He says, you have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments. In other words, not everybody in this church was dead or on their way to dying. There were some who were doing really well. They were, um, and notice he says, and they have not defiled their garments. And they shall walk with me in white, Jesus says, for they are worthy. In the ancient culture, whenever it speaks of uh, white robes, a lot of times in, in weddings back at this time, they would uh, all the guests of the wedding party would wear uh, white linen. And this, uh, in the Bible, we know this speaks of the righteousness of God. And, and Jesus clothes us, with, clothes us with His robe of righteousness because it's something that He purchased for us. That's the way God sees you. Isn't that wonderful? God no longer looks at me, even, even still with all my flaws and my, my sin. He doesn't look upon me as... God sees you in me positionally in Christ, in heavenly places, seated with Christ in heavenly places. He sees you that way. And yet, day to day, what, what bothers us so much is we don't always feel like that. And it's okay. I mean, we, we understand we don't always feel like that, but we have to understand how God sees us and to just keep our hearts focused on Him because He knows. And then we continue to turn from those things that we know are not right and, and call upon Him, say, Lord, help me, you know. Uh, none of us are perfect, but we need to rest upon a holy God who is perfect, and He will change our hearts moment by moment, day by day, year by year. He's doing it in my life. Is He doing it in yours? I know He is. Will you let Him have complete control over your life? Don't set a governor and say, I'm going to only go this far, you know, and God will allow you to do that. You're going to be miserable uh, if you say, God, I'm only going to go this far, and that's it. You can only have this part of me, only this much of me, but the rest of it's mine to do with what I want. And if you're really a Christian and, and thinking that way, you're missing out on the greatest blessing of your entire life. You're missing out on why He created you to begin with. And trust me, 
when you are in the center of His will, when you are doing His will, and when you love Him and He's able to use you, you are going to be the most blessed person. You're going to be, <laughs> you're going to be so excited about things and um, your life is going to be fulfilling because it has a purpose. So many people walking around with no purpose in life. Well, I'm just going to make my money and I'm going to end up in a home and then I'm finally going to die. You know, is that, re is that really what life is all about? You know, trying to amass money so that I can live comfortably now and then, and then you know, there's so much more to life than money and the things that it can provide. There is a wholeness, there is a peace that you can have with God. Do you have that peace? If you don't, ask God to give you that peace today because He loves you. He doesn't want your life to be miserable. In fact, didn't we read in Deuteronomy 30 that He wants you to choose life? If, 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 you, if He gives you the, the ability to choose life, isn't He offering it to you in its fullest, in, its, in the fullness of life, in everything about life? It's, it's a wonderful thing. It's so wonderful. It's so wonderful. Verse 5, He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out, blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Again, white garments, it just speaks of uh, the righteousness of God that he places on us and, and the works that he does through us that we're even allowed to do, the righteousness of the saints. It's an amazing thing. In fact, in Revelation chapter 19, right before Jesus comes to the earth physically in his second coming, physically to this earth, which is yet future, of course. He says, says in verse 7 of Revelation 19, Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. The wife is the church of, of Jesus Christ, us, those who are believers in him. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the bright linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And, and this wedding supper of the Lamb is going to take place right after Jesus comes back in His second glorious coming. There's going to be a wedding supper uh, uh, that we are going to have as believers with Him in Jerusalem on this earth for a thousand years. I mean, that, that's how long the, the, the span is. But we're, at the beginning of that, there is going to be a marriage supper of the Lamb. And each one of us is going to have that white linen uh, clothed and, and we will rejoice with Him. But notice what it says in here, and this is kind of problematic for some people. It says, and I will not blot out his name. Who, who, he who overcomes will be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, God has written you in his book of life. In fact, I believe from the scripture that before we were even born, God had written your name in a book. And it's not until you take your last breath, your very last breath physically on this earth, it will determine, based on your faith in Christ or not, whether that name stays there or whether it's blotted out. And that, that's really the language behind here. It, 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 it's not creating doubt about, about the, the person, because if you're, if you're in Christ and you're a Christian, you have overcome. And so we have that assurance. The book of life, uh, like I said, I believe everyone is written in there, and then at their last breath they are either blotted out or their name remains in there. In Psalm 5, and we'll end here in just a few seconds. In Psalm 9, it says, You have rebuked the nations, and you have destroyed the wicked, the psalmist says, speaking of God. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. In other words, you've removed them, their name from the, your book of life. Because wouldn't it stand to reason that God's book of life would have the name of everyone who has ever lived or ever will live? And then it's, it's, and then it's their decision whether they are going to receive Christ or not. And that, that allows them to either be in the book 
or at the very end for their name to be blotted out of that book. And see, that, that's God's perspective. Isn't that wonderful? He, he, he puts you in there to begin with. He knows whether you're going to choose Him because He knows everything. But every single person has the opportunity. And you know, so there's no, you can't go down that line and, and, and so many church divisions have happened over whether God is completely sovereign or whether man has free will. It's both, folks. The Bible teaches both. God knows because He's outside of time who's going to choose Him. And who's going to walk with him? And he knows those who aren't. But he puts every name in the book and he gives everyone an opportunity. And then the implication is, I have to receive him. I have to come to terms with what he's done for me. And if I ignore him and say, I don't want anything to do with you, then God will give us that choice. And ultimately our name will be blotted out. In Exodus chapter 7, it says, Then the Lord, this is verse 14, then the Lord said to Moses, Write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. Notice, Amalek. This was a king and certainly a race of people. But he says, this specific man, I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. He had, he had died and still in unbelief and in, and in his own sin and doomed forever. And that's, that's his decision that he made. Remember in, in Exodus chapter 32, after the incident with the golden calf and Moses pleading for the people after you know he came down from the mountain with the Ten uh, Commandments in his hand on two stone tablets and they were, they were worshiping a molten calf, uh, Egypt was still a, a part of them and, uh, so soon after coming out of Egypt. And notice what Moses says. And it says, It came to pass on the next day, this is Exodus 32 beginning in verse 30, now it came to pass on the next day that Moses said to the people, You have committed a great sin, so now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. And then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh, these people have committed a great sin and have made for themselves a God of gold. Yet now, and notice the heart of Moses, Yet now, if you will forgive their sin, great. But if not, I pray you, blot me out of your book, which you have written. And, and this is just the, the heart of a man. And, and God is was working in Moses's heart so much so that it, he was like, you know, blot blot, you know, don't blot them, forgive their sin, but if you're not going to forgive their sin, then take me, then let me be associated with them and blot us all out of your book, right? And so, but we know that that's ultimately what's not going to happen. Finally, let's look at one verse and then we'll finish up here quickly. Uh, in Revelation chapter 20, this is really what we call the, wait, the great white throne judgment. And this, we've spent time in this as we've gone through Revelation because it's important. Anyone at this great white throne judgment will be those who have rejected Christ. And ultimately, they're, as they stand before Christ, it's not going to be a sentence where they, they are going to go to heaven. No, everyone who is at this great white throne judgment will be doomed. But notice what it says in verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. Notice, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. And then it says, The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades and hell delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. 
Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the eternal resting place for the wicked, uh, Satan, the false prophet. The, uh, all of them will be cast into the lake of fire. And this is the second death. And anyone not written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. That is a very severe statement, Scripture. And, and that is what brought one of, the, one of the things that brought me into the kingdom of God is reading about this. Because I'm like, you know what, Lord, I don't want to be in that place. And I, I want to give my heart completely to you. And notice what it says at the very end of this verse. It says, But I will confess, he says, He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. I love what it says in Matthew 10, verse 32. Jesus said, Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him will I confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny my, before my Father who is in heaven. And so it is important that we confess Christ everywhere we go, whenever we can, whenever it's appropriate. Most of the time it is. And so we need to be led by the Spirit even as we do that, to not just force things on people, but to... Uh, be creative and, and get people to talk and, and minister to them the Word of God because they need it. More than ever, the church has right now has the great responsibility in the time that we live right now to shine more than ever before, to show the world that we're not hiding away in a mountain somewhere trying to you know get all of our ducks in a row and um, hide you know all of our money and, and do all this stuff. No, it should be just the opposite. We need to be out there telling people, calling them, and encouraging them, saying, you know what, the time is short. And that may rub against some of you as you hear that, but that's the truth. That's the truth. We need to be about our Father's business. And Jesus loves every single person. Don't ever mistake that. He who has an ear, verse 6, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Notice this. This letter was meant to go to all the churches. So, he who has an ear, we have to be listening. Let him hear what the Spirit says. So as we read this, you know, it was a very tough letter, I'll admit. I, I, I actually went through some real tough heart-searching myself in preparation for this morning. You know, I looked at my own life, and I'm continuing to look at it, and it broke my heart on where sometimes I find myself in my own, uh, in my own thoughts and my own heart not being where it should be. And, and I would encourage you to, to l allow yourself to be challenged too. Sometimes my heart can be cold. Sometimes my attitude can be wrong. Sometimes my vision can be skewed. And, and so, you know, honestly, I, I get on my knees and I say, Lord, make me not like this. Change my life. Change the church. Change our fellowship. Whatever it is that you want to change. Again, not all of us fit into this mold. Maybe you're doing really well, and praise the Lord for that, you know, but we, we, we have to really examine ourselves and not, and not allow ourselves to get into that place where we're dying on the vine. We have to be vibrant and really seeking the Lord and doing everything we can to get our eyes on Him and read the Word of God. Let it challenge you. Be obedient to it. That's where one of our problems is. We read, about, we read the Bible, but it's for somebody else. We have to read the Bible for ourselves and let it take control. Let the Word of God have its effect on us first before anybody else. Before anybody else. So let's pray. Father, we 
ask, uh, Lord, for your blessing today upon our lives. We ask that you would touch every single person who is tuning in right now, who's listening. Lord, families that are sitting around the monitor right now. Lord, young ones and those in the middle. Lord, those who are elderly, those who are in between, Father, for each... (laughs) We just ask that you'd touch and heal, Lord, that you'd set us on fire again, Lord, that you would reveal to us, Lord, where we need to, uh, the things that we need to turn from, Lord, the things that we need to forsake, the things that we need to cut off from our life that's just causing problems. Lord, your mercy, touch us today and pour out your Spirit upon us here at Calvary Chapel of Rochester, Lord. Do a new work. We plead with you. We beg you, Lord to do a new work in each of us. And start with me, God. I don't care what you want to do. You do it. I just want to be open to what you want to do. Set me on fire if you have to. Lord, set all of us. Give us that that desire, Lord, that uh, burning love for you and a burning love for people. And may it manifest itself in the most wonderful ways, the most loving, compassionate, gracious ways because you are the example for us, Lord. You are the most spiritual man on the planet and you are the most loving and the most approachable person. And so, Lord, we want to be like you. And so, Lord, have your way with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.